Hi, I'm Dee Hicks, and welcome to the School of Leadership, leveraged lessons from high-impact leaders. For the past 30 years, I've researched the disciplines, habits, mental models, and assumptions of the most effective leaders. This podcast takes what I've learned from over 2,000 of these influencers and distills it into practical tools and tips you can use immediately. So let's get started. It's that time again, time to light up a really enjoyable cigar. Once again, I've gone back to one of my favorite brands. This is an Oliva. It is a Nicaraguan Puro. I've had one of these before or a couple of these before on one of these podcasts. And it's just a great cigar. Starts off nice and mellow. Gets a little bit sweet, about an inch or so into it. Of course, I just lit it, so I'm anticipating that. And then it picks up notes of cedar and pepper. And I'm not all that sophisticated, so that's about as far as it goes. Then it starts smelling and tasting like, well, like cigar. <laughs> well, I don't know. If you're not a cigar smoker, you're like, you want to fast forward through this part. I always take a minute or two at the beginning to talk about whatever cigar I might be smoking. And I'm recording this on a Saturday afternoon. I'm also going to be enjoying with it. Let me set the cigar down because this is a two-hander deal here going to be enjoying with it uh, some Elijah Craig small batch. I've got the uh, large bottle here. <laughs> this is a big bottle and uh, it's not the not the classic size. It's the great big bottle of it. Not that I always have to have it in that size, but uh, this was brought over and uh, and it's so it sits on the shelf with a bunch of other great bourbons and I'm going to enjoy this today. Elijah Craig small batch Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. This one's a 94 proof. And small batch is a, such a smooth, a smooth bourbon. I have poured it in a Norlin glass. Those glasses I mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts are some of my favorite ways to drink bourbon, certain types of bourbon, and certainly a lot of types of scotch. Of course, this uh, glass suggests you don't put ice in it, and it's it's quite beautiful. I really like the way they're constructed. You gotta look them up and see what it is I'm holding in my hand. They're angular and curved at the same time. They are double walled with. Um, with space between the wall on the inside and the wall on the outside of the glass. And you can see the inside is all nice and curved, and the outside is angular. And it's a beautiful work of art. But it also uh, enables me to smell the bourbon really well. There's, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's the placebo effect. Maybe they say, because the glasses are $40 for a pair or something like that. I don't remember the price exactly. They were a gift as well. I think the bourbon tastes better in them. <laughs> You've heard of that before, right? Haven't you? If, you, if you're given an ibuprofen or a, a pain medication that is uh, not marked and you're told it costs $6, it will work better than the one you were given that is exactly the same that costs $2. <laughs> Uh, that's fine. That's fine. The point is to get rid of the pain, I guess. Well, that's not the point of bourbon for me. It might be for you or some for some folks that you know and love, but that's not the point of bourbon for me, to get rid of pain. It's just enjoyable. It's beautiful. It's enjoyable drink. I like knowing how it was made. I like the craft that went into it. And of course, I like the smell and the taste. Mm. 94 proof is right about, right about at the level where I start noticing the first sip has quite the alcohol kick to it. <laughs> what do they call this? The Kentucky hug? When you take that first sip of bourbon and it goes down your gullet. Ah, it feels a little bit warm. 
Um, and I'm, I've never been a fan of that very first sip. Today's podcast is entitled, You're Doing It Wrong. <laughs> How about that? You're doing it wrong. It's really about compassion fatigue. Maybe you've heard the term before. Maybe you've even experienced it before. But compassion fatigue is something that people in helping professions talk about a lot. In fact, they've been talking about it to me quite a bit over the last six to nine months. Seems like it's come up over and over and it isn't just confirmation bias or it isn't just my reticular activating system kicking in and finding what I'm looking for. People are actually talking about it more. If you are experiencing compassion fatigue, you're experiencing stress that is resulting from exposure to other people who are traumatized or stressed or afraid and you're experiencing a lot of that exposure to them and you're starting to feel tired as a result of that, compassion fatigue is what you might be experiencing. Compassion fatigue has been described as the convergence of secondary traumatic stress. There's a fun term for you. It's also cumulative. It isn't just with one experience or two. It's with multiple experiences over a period of time. And it results in a state of physical and mental exhaustion on your part. And also results in a depleted ability to cope with your everyday environment. If that environment is one in which you are around people who are stressed out all the time or traumatized in some way, and your role is to protect them or to help them or to serve them in some way. You are somebody who might be experiencing compassion fatigue. That term was first coined by a guy by the name of Charles Figley back in the early 1980s. And the idea is, do you find yourself getting tired of caring for people? Do you find yourself um, exhausted because you're around people who are in some way suffering or in pain or having a really difficult time? It's the result of secondary stress. Someone is stressed and then you're stressed as a result of their stress or vicarious trauma. Somebody is traumatized and then as a result of that, you have a, you have a significant response to it. You may not be traumatized, but there's a vicarious experience you have because of their trauma. It's happened over a period of time, so you find yourself starting to get fatigued, find yourself starting to wear out a little bit. I've noticed that folks in law enforcement have been talking with me about it, folks in, of course, healthcare, to the current waves of challenges is brought on by COVID and our response to that. I've noticed that folks in public safety and comm centers are experiencing it quite a bit as well. Not everyone experiences it, which uh, this has always been intriguing to me. If you put two people side by side and have them experience almost exactly the same thing, why does one of them uh, have a difficult time with it and another one does not? And let me be blunt, if you are experiencing compassion fatigue, I do have compassion for you but you're doing it wrong. And I say that with affection. I say that with as much kindness as I can. But if you're experiencing compassion fatigue, it's likely you're doing it wrong. And please don't think I'm chastising you in any way or being critical or judgmental. But wouldn't you like to know if the compassion fatigue you're experiencing is a result of not the experience external to you, not the needs of others around you, not the challenges and stresses and traumas that they are experiencing, but it's a result of how you think. And it's a result of what you're doing with the experiences that you have. Something that's actually within your control. It's not the result of things that are outside of your control. So let me be frank and blunt with you. If you are experiencing compassion fatigue and you're not able to get out of it and you've been in it for a while, it's because you're doing it wrong. It's not because you care too much. 
It's something else. And I want to unpack what that is for you. The first clue, of course, to this is in the definition that I just read to you, which is the clinical definition. I'll go back to it again. Compassion fatigue, here's the definition, is stress resulting from exposure to a traumatized individual. It's actually more than that. It's, it's not just one traumatized individual. It's multiple traumatized individuals or multiple experiences around a person who is experiencing trauma. Compassion fatigue has been, the definition goes on to say, described as a convergence of secondary traumatic stress and cumulative burnout over a long period of time. And it's a state of physical and mental exhaustion. Now listen carefully here. I'm going to slow down because the point is in one word coming up caused by a depleted ability to, here's the word, cope with one's everyday environment. We're going to zoom in on the idea of how to cope. The word coping is an interesting word. And back in the day when I was in high school and early college, we as a family owned a swimming pool business. And uh, it was part of my job in working in that business to build swimming pools. We would put these wonderful swimming pools in the ground and then it was time for us to put the concrete deck around the outside of the swimming pool. And uh, we wanted to make sure that the concrete deck came right up to the edge of the pool so that it was very even, so that a person walking up to the edge of the pool would not stub their toe over the pool deck edge, which was higher than the concrete. We wanted the two to be even and perfectly flush. There was a part of the pool that came up and curved around that met the concrete deck, and that edge of the pool was called the coping. The word coping in this context is to be equal with. So the edge of the pool was, because of the coping, equal with the concrete deckway around the pool. What you and I want to be able to have is coping mechanisms that make us equal with the challenges that we have. So it is highly likely if you're experiencing compassion fatigue, it's in your coping mechanism. Now, if you're not really sure, what, what's this compassion fatigue he's talking about? Well, there are some symptoms to this, clinically speaking. There's hyperarousal, there's anxiety, there's even depression and avoidance and withdrawal from other people. There are intrusive images and thoughts about the suffering of other people. There's quite a bit of sleeplessness, although you may fall asleep quickly and never really get rested. And then there's the reduced ability to concentrate on everyday things throughout the day. Sounds a little bit like PTSD, doesn't it? Except that there's a little bit of a difference in PTSD. There is hypervigilance that's added to all the things that I suggested above. And hypervigilance is expecting threats all the time, all the time. And in PTSD, there's a different source to the hypervigilance and, uh, and the symptoms I listed above. The source of PTSD is primary trauma or stress. That means that you have personally experienced it. And the source of compassion fatigue is secondary or vicarious trauma or stress. You're seeing someone suffering. Also, there's, a, there's an expectation that you're supposed to be able to help. This is important to get your, wrap your mind around, that if you think you're supposed to be able to take away the person's pain and suffering, that you're supposed to help and you can't, yet you're exposed to that over and over again, you set yourself up for compassion fatigue. All right, so much of that. All right, it's kind of clinical, but that gives the background. Maybe you're just going, I don't know, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> I just don't want to be around people who are who are not doing very well and and I don't I don't even want to think about it anymore and I find myself just tired of it all the time. Well, compassion fatigue might be what you're experiencing. Who are people that experience compassion fatigue? 
Well, we found that people who experience compassion fatigue are higher on an empathy scale than others. They are more empathetic than others. So if you're somebody like that, you will probably be a person who could set yourself up to experience compassion fatigue. Uh, so who else is experiencing compassion fatigue? Well, people in jobs where emotions run strong, especially negative emotions, especially where there are emotions around how uh, difficult it is for people or people that are suffering. People who are experiencing compassion fatigue are also helpers. Uh, they're kind of predisposed to think, I, I like helping people. Also, kind of a surprise that if you're an introvert, you're probably more likely to experience compassion fatigue than if you are an extrovert. Also, people who care a lot about being liked and being seen as helpful are folks who tend to experience compassion fatigue. They care a lot about what others think of them. Those who don't care a lot about what others think or care a lot about what a few people think tend to not experience compassion fatigue. Here's one more thing we found out about those who experience compassion fatigue. People who are on shift work tend to experience compassion fatigue, especially those who are on the off shifts, not the daylight shifts because it messes with your circadian rhythm. <laughs> You're so well aware of that. If I've described you, then maybe you are a person who is set up to experience compassion fatigue. Why do they experience compassion fatigue? If you're one of these, why are you experiencing it? You remember what I suggested earlier about the indications that you are experiencing compassion fatigue. Why are you experiencing compassion fatigue? So, if you're sitting right here, I would communicate this with you in a compassionate way. Ironic, huh? Because I'm not trying to be judgmental or hypercritical of you. I just want to help you understand that if you are experiencing compassion fatigue, it's because you're doing it wrong. So here, have a sip of the Elijah Craig with me and light up your cigar and sit back and think about this just a little bit. It's possible that one of the ways you're doing it wrong is you are letting the people you are responsible for caring for or providing for or protecting or helping in some way outsource their personal responsibility to you. And you're allowing yourself to feel responsible for what they are responsible for. So one of the ways we increase our load a lot and set ourselves up for compassion fatigue is by carrying what is not ours to carry. You're allowing them to outsource their responsibility to you. And remember, they are responsible for whom they trust, and they are responsible for their perspective, how they look at things, and they're responsible for their own behavior. You are not and cannot be responsible for those three things. They are. So it's also possible if you're doing it wrong, it's because you have a mental model that is flawed. And we've talked a lot over the years about mental models. And if this is your first time listening to one of these podcasts from me, a mental model is a mental habit. It's a fairly sophisticated structure that we build up in our mind about what's true. And we have mental models about everything. They are constructs we build in our mind about ourselves, about other people, about our work, about the Ford Motor Company, about cigars, <laughs> about global warming or climate change about Republicans and Democrats and healthcare and seatbelts and masks. And we've got all kinds of interesting mental models we build because our brains are fairly efficient. I could also call them lazy in the sense that our brain wants to reduce 
complexity to the simplest form possible, and that's often just a simple model we build about something. And the model in our brain, these mental models, these mental habits, these assumptions, don't have to be accurate totally in order to work. They only need to be partly accurate. They only need to be close enough. So you've got mental models about what your job is. You've got a mental model around being effective and about being helpful that may set you up to experience compassion fatigue. Here it is. You may think that in order to be caring and to be effective, I have to feel what that person I'm caring for actually feels. That is to say, if they're discouraged, I need to feel that discouragement with them. If they're sad, I need to feel the sadness. If they're really confused and afraid, I will not be able to help them unless I feel a little confused and afraid with them. That somehow feeling what another person feels who's suffering and having a hard time or is difficult is a sign that I actually care. That is a flawed mental model. The cousin to that flawed mental model is that me expressing those feelings, those emotions, that passion to you is the way that I tell you that I realize how big of a deal it is that you are going through this suffering or this difficulty or this loss. And that is a flawed mental model. Caring is in action, not in emotion. And it's possible at times when you have been able to care for someone and protect, provide, support, something, that is a, that is a result of you, the role you're in and your experience with that person, and you've not felt what they felt, you may have stepped away feeling a little guilty. Like, what, what am I, kind of cold-hearted here? Am I not a compassionate person? And so you wanted to incorrectly turn up the compassion so that somehow you feel the actual emotion that they feel. This, if you are in one of these professions that I spoke about or something like it, will set you up to not be helpful. It is a flawed mental model. Here's what we've learned, that every professional who does not experience compassion fatigue has figured out a way to care genuinely in action, in judgment, in decisions, in behaviors without turning on the compassionate empathy switch. You can actually do that. You can care a lot about somebody and what they're going through and what they're experiencing without letting the neurochemicals of fear or the neurochemicals of sadness course through your veins. Because the way we help is not by feeling what other people who are in hard times are feeling. The way we help is by making good decisions, by having good judgment, by having actions that enable us to be compassionate. The person doesn't need us to feel what they feel. If you're a 911 call receiver, that person calling at a moment in their life that is really difficult does not need you to feel the fear, the sadness, the terror, the confusion that they are feeling in order for you to help them. In fact, if you do, even in small amounts, you will not be able to help them. You will experience what they are experiencing, which is emotional distortion. Emotional distortion is like putting a big fisheye lens over, the, over our perception and causing some things to be completely exaggerated and others missed utterly. We don't want to experience emotional distortion when we're helping people. We want to be able to step back, take a breath, and do the compassionate thing. Have good judgment without feeling what they are feeling. This is true compassion. So in the moments that you find yourself swept away with similar feelings because you're empathetic, 
take a pause, step back and realize to feel what they feel is actually not going to help them at all. It'll make it worse for them. There are many places where you could apply this if, for example, you are somebody who's in a supervisory position in an organization and you need to talk with somebody about their really bad performance and you've spoken with them about it many, many times, but you delay it because you don't want them to feel bad and you feel bad for them, then you're not helping them at all. And if then finally you do sit down with them and walk them through the consequences of their poor performance and what their future will look like if they do not turn it around, but you do so in such a way that it's distorted with your own emotion, feeling like you're the one who's going through it, you will not give them a clear message. And tell you what, clarity is the best way to be compassionate. So figure out how to do it. All pros have figured out how to do this, and I want to show you how to do it. Okay, finally now, here we are, minutes into this thing. Who knows how long this is going to be. Right now, it looks like it's almost 30 minutes long, but I will make sure we edit this way down so we get to the point that I'm not just blathering on here. How do you do it right? If you're doing it wrong with that fundamental mental model, then change that mental model and do it right. Here are some things you can do that will help you to have compassion and do it right. Start off, when you notice a feeling, give that feeling a name and ask them to name their feeling. So what are you feeling right now? Instead of just assuming what they're feeling and taking it on board yourself, what are you feeling right now? If the situation allows for it. I'm feeling afraid. Okay, when they name that fear, or I'm feeling terrified, or I'm feeling angry, or I'm feeling confused, or I'm feeling uh, abandoned, or whatever words they're going to give to their feeling, when they name that feeling, it makes it easier for you to hold that feeling outside of yourself. So give that feeling a name. If you have a feeling, give that feeling a name too. It takes a second to do that. And whenever we do that, we're moving those feelings from certain parts of our brain that are not very precise into much more precise parts of our brain. And that act gives you more of a sense of control, an actual control. So ask them to name what they're feeling if it's appropriate and then name what you are feeling. Also, here's another trick. Here's a pro trick. If you're feeling some of the emotions uh, as a result of watching them, helping them, being around somebody who is suffering, notice where it's happening in your body. So not only should I name the feeling I'm having, but I should name where I'm feeling it. <laughs> I am feeling sick to my stomach, for example. I feel it in my stomach, you might be able to say. Okay, so the next part is then make sure you come back to the present moment. Get right here, right now, because often the feelings of compassion we have and empathy are not about right now, but they're about another moment. Maybe they are about an image we're playing in our mind of when that person was hurt or when they suffered an hour ago or a month ago. And we're playing that video in our mind that's not in this moment. So come right back to this moment right here, right now. Be right here, right now. Don't be anywhere else. Another way you can make sure you're in this present moment is to move physically. If you are just sitting still calmly and quietly, and maybe you're in a conversation where you can't just jump up and run around the room, but understand that as soon as you can, you need to move physically. Exercise is an incredibly helpful way to be able to deal with the kind of feelings that come with helping other people who are suffering. Set boundaries as well. Remember, this isn't about you. It's about them. Don't make it about you. Get out in nature. Take a 90-minute walk, a regular 90-minute walk several times a week out in nature. It lowers your cortisol. 
It, it changes your brain activity so that it gets out of that emotionally driven part of your brain and gets clear up into the medial prefrontal cortex. And then when you do that, it lessens that rumination activity that goes on in your brain where you're worrying and thinking about it over and over. It's amazing what happens with a 90-minute walk out in nature. It lowers your blood pressure, gives you higher serotonin, and it enables our brain to rewire itself so we're able to see the big picture. So we don't hang on to all the negative parts of the image and drop out all the positive parts of the image that we're experiencing. We're actually able to see it more holistically. So get out in nature. It might be the single most important thing you could do if you're experiencing compassion fatigue. Make sure you do that two, three, four times a week if you possibly can. 90 minutes at a time is probably the best. So that's incredibly, incredibly powerful stuff. So if you're going to do it right, do all of those things. As we run to the very end here now, remember, it's important that the person that you are protecting, caring for, serving, helping in some way gets your judgment and they get your help, not your feelings. Remember this, it's my job to act compassionately, not feel compassionate. It's my job to act to support or help, not to have the same feelings that they are feeling. I want from you, if I am in a situation like that, compassionate judgment. I want compassionate decisions, compassionate behavior. I don't want you to feel what I feel. It will actually make it worse for me if you do. And as we wrap this up here, remember this. If you feel too much of what others are feeling, you're not actually helping them. You may end up hurting them and yourself in the long run. Do compassionate things, but don't have all the same feelings that they feel. There you go. Compassion fatigue. I get it. I have compassion for you <laughs> if you're experiencing compassion fatigue. Uh, but it's mostly because with all due respect, bless your heart, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> well, one thing that was not done wrong was the Elijah Craig bourbon. That was done very, very well. I think I'll finish this right now, and I think I may even go for a 90-minute walk. I live in a beautiful area surrounded by 100-foot cedar trees and mountain paths and water everywhere I look. It's so beautiful out here on the Olympic Peninsula in the state of Washington. I think I'll take my own advice and uh, go out for a walk. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. And I'm sure you've heard about it by now, but you may want to check out our YouTube channel that has this kind of information, lots of helpful tips for folks who are in leadership, management, supervisory positions, or if you're an influencer of people daring folks to do great things. Check us out on YouTube. It's the Hilt, H-I-L-T, Academy, High Impact Leadership Training Academy on YouTube. Some great stuff. Join us over there. Subscribe when you get there, and that'll let us know you like that stuff. Anyway, have a great day. Thanks for joining me in today's School of Leadership. This podcast is part of the Archimedes Experiment, leveraged wisdom from the world's most effective leaders. If you're interested in more, go to my website, dhicks.com. Remember, my first name has only one E. Well, you'll find more short and helpful podcast books and blog posts. If this was helpful, maybe even share it with some of your friends. Have a great day.